Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Earth, Wind & Fire are the Black Beatles. Their influence can't be overstated. You'd be hard-pressed to find a wedding or graduation party in the last 50 years where their music didn't bring generations together to dance and sing their hearts out. Earth, Wind & Fire's music is intricate, combining melody with mysticism and jazz to create some of the most instantly recognizable and profound music of the 70s. Earth, Wind & Fire's groove is immense, and that's not an accident. Maurice White, who started Earth, Wind & Fire in 1969, spent years as a jazz drummer around Chicago before becoming a frontman. And the group's rhythm section was held down by his brothers, including Verdine White on bass. Earth, Wind & Fire might have been Maurice's musical vision, but the band's spirit always came from his younger brother, Verdine. His sheer joy for music can't be contained. On stage with his sequined outfits and long-pressed hair, Verdine dances with as much dexterity as he plays bass. Verdine has been leading the group, along with Philip Bailey, since the 90s, when Maurice stepped back from the band due to Parkinson's disease, which he ultimately passed from in 2016. Rick Rubin connected with Verdine to talk about the early days of Earth, Wind & Fire and about their producer, Charles Stepney, who Verdine calls their George Mark. Also, Rick reads to Verdine a poignant note from the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Flea about what makes Verdine's bass playing so special. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Verdine White. What's happening? Good to see you. Good to see you too. How are you, my friend? Very well. How are you? I'm fantastic. So good to see you. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I was just talking to Flea about uh, that we were going to be speaking. Uh-huh. I want to read to you what he said. What did Flea say? He said, Verdine was a guy who, who played massive pop hits where he rocked virtuoso bass playing in the context of memorable grooves that doesn't exist anymore. And how Earth, Wind & Fire's music appealed more than any other band of all time to all uh, 
all ages, all ethnicities. And when I was a kid in middle school, this is fully talking, the black kids like P-Funk, the white kids like Kiss and Led Zeppelin, everybody loved Earth, Wind and Fire. Old, young, black, white, Mexican, Asian, amazing, and a thing I've always strived for based on Earth, Wind and Fire. Oh, wow. Isn't it beautiful? It's heavy. I love Flea. I've, known, it, Flea. I've known Flea for a long time, long, long time, you know? Yeah, yeah. How, how much do you guys practice historically? When we do, we, we do sound checks every day. I never miss a sound check. Uh, when we do re- big production rehearsals, it's big. It's a lot. If rehearsals start at 10 o'clock in the morning, I am there at 9. If it starts at 11, I'm there at 10. If it starts at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm there at 3 o'clock in the morning. I still do the same things. Those same rituals don't, have never changed for me. Amazing. It brings up, were there any rituals that your band would do before you would go on stage? Was there any, uh, any practices? Well, we still do, uh, we call it the circle. Uh, we get into the circle, you know, we throw everything out of the day, you know, for us it's the start of another day. You know, you know how you meditate in the morning and then you meditate yes. in the evening, it, it's really the beginning of another day. So I we see. throw everything out and we tune in as to what we need to do. And we have honorary members sometimes that have come to our circle, you know? Uh, you know, Russell Wilson, you know, he was in our circle one evening. Dion Warwick was in our circle. And we invite people in sometimes to the circle because it's a sacred circle. Beautiful. And we say, for that night, you are in the band. You are part of the music tonight. And a lot of people want to get into the circle because they want to feel what we are feeling. And although we are in all individuals, we all have different things, different lifestyles. When we get into that circle, we get into that the earth, wind, the EWF or the fire vibration. You know, which we tune back into, you know, my late brother Maurice, we tune in all the work he did, all the records we did, the late Charles Stepney, our ranger producer, you know, things like that. So we tune right back into earth, wind and fire. All those qualities, you know, as we talk about, we buy into it. Have you always been doing this? Forever. Wow. Since the 70s, forever. Beautiful. We have program books of, of back in the day when we were in the circle, our choreographers, when we had dancers, the dancers were in the circle. We've always done that. So when we go on stage, we are, you know, I'm for Dean White. We have Philip Bailey. We have Ralph Johnson. Um, you know, the three of us are the leaders now. You know what I mean? Philip and I. But we get into the things that we created. Don't forget, we created Earth, Wind & Fire. So we go right back to, to that place, you know, that sacred space of that thing, you know. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm so glad you do it. It's, it's just such a beautiful thing. So you, you really, it unifies the players into being not themselves anymore, but into this, thi- this thing, Earth, Wind & Fire. Is that, is that, would that be accurate? That's right. Of what that is, of what we created, and what we stand for, what our intentions have been. You know, because we've been around, I mean, we've had a record out every, what, generation, right? You know, like, you know, right now we have this yeah. song I would make and train her for Christmas, but we've had records out. But now what happens with us, the older people turn the younger people on to us and they go back and start listening, you know? And what I find now that the other generations and other musicians, like Flea knows our work, but the younger musicians want to know what it's like being us and how do you get there, you know? Yes. And I think what's going on with the younger people I don't think they're concerned. I think it used to be, I want to be successful. Now I think they want to be immortal. 
and leave a legacy. And they, they look at us as guys that have done that. So they want to know how do we get that? Because success comes and goes, you know, depending on the culture, depending on what the wind, like a tennis ball or a golf ball, the crosswinds could throw you off, right? You know, but when you when you when you turn out to be a legend or immortality, it stays forever. And so so few of your contemporaries have managed to keep going. Like, it, who who were the bands? Who would you say were the the competition in the early days? Well, in the early days, it was people like Ohio players, right? War, Mandrill right? You know, groups like that. Commodores, right? Lionel and them, you know? And I do see Lionel and I speak to Lionel quite a lot. And so I, those were our contemporaries at that time. And at that particular time, we were just kind of like starting out and, and we were growing up. But, the, but Maurice, because he was older than us, 10 years older, he was more mature. So he knew yes. kind of like where we were headed, you know? Where we ended up being, he was already there. You know, he was just, I think kind of, when I look back at it, he was kind of waiting for us to catch up. Wow. And, 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 and Reese, although he was, uh, you know, he was a great leader, he was a tough leader, he was really actually patient with us, too. You know, and a lot of the stuff that we would do, he'd laugh at because he'd say, okay, when they get past that, then we'll have a good talk, you know. And Maurice didn't really write his book uh, until he saw us at the Hollywood Bowl. Maurice came out, I brought him out, walked him out to the fans, and people gave him a standing ovation. That's when he decided to write the book because he said he knew that it was in good hands. And we, that was our first time playing with an orchestra and, you know, 90 pieces. And when we played the Hollywood Bowl last year, it was beautiful. Broke box office records again, Thomas Wilkins. And then we kind of got out of this, you know, we're sort of more into the like, you know, the earth, wind and fire, what it means. Not into the, the successful part of it, because we kind of did that, you know, because success kind of dictates you or me. But our thing is you and me. So that's where we are. Amazing. It's one of the things, it's like if I listen to any other, and I'm, and I'm not limiting Earth, Wind, and Fire to funk, but let's talk about funk just because it's such a, uh, it's one of the pillars of, of Earth, Wind, and Fire is funk. And if I look at the other funk music that I've listened to, there's always, a, almost always a, a looseness about it that you guys never, you guys always had a precision beyond any other band making any music related, it always seemed much tighter, much more precise, much more like fanatical in a way, like just like uh, perfect. It was always perfect. Absolutely. What with, with us, we were never what you call a jam jam band. You know, don't forget now Maurice's background was, you know, jazz. You know what I mean? We come out of Chicago, you know, uh, chess records, you know, things Maurice did, you know. But there was a precision to the music, you know, with the late Charles Stepney, uh, with the horns, uh, which people like Quincy respected, you know, because Quincy's work was very precise with Michael Jackson, you know what I mean? So, you know, it was always precision. Every, you know, everything's on the dot, as we are now, as we are now. You know, if we get a little loose, we talk about it, you know? We say, listen, we got to tighten this up here, because you can get a little loose, you know? You can get a little loose, you can forget where those bars are, you know, you know, on maybe on the fourth night when you're a little tired, you might forget, you know, thought about, you know, you have to remind yourself to be just a little bit more on the dot, you know? Yeah. As it relates to bass playing, from the time that a, a song would come, come into existence, how would the bass evolve into what we hear on the record version? Like, how, how close would it be from the first time you play it, let's say? Tell me about the process of developing the bass. Well, the process would be because Maurice was a drummer. So I would hear all the songs 
and he'd play me a lot of the tunes. So our groove was pretty natural. But I would always go back and we'd go back and listen again before we record. And then he said, what do you want to do right here? What do you want to do? And then I kind of learned in a very unorthodox style from classical to, you know, R&B. And my, and my, the best teacher I ever had was the late Louis Satterfield, who was a trombone player in the Phoenix Horns, who went to college with Maurice. And so I had a chance to kind of do both, you know, look at the paper, throw the paper away and then create my own style. Yeah. So a lot of times I would just listen to see what I was going to do. Would it be a demo? Would he be a recorded demo? Sometimes it could be a demo. Sometimes it could be when we were sitting in a room and he would just start playing. Then I would just start playing. And then while I'm playing, I, I would imagine, you know, I'm going to try this when I listen to it back. So I would just spend time just listening. And sometimes if Maurice was like writing with somebody, I'd lay on the couch and just listen while he was doing it. And I'd say, oh, wait till I get to that. Wait till I get to my part. I knew what kind of like what I was going to do, you know, but I had room to do it in, you know. And some of the songwriters, they said, I never intended the bass to sound like that. You know what I mean? Because they yeah. sort of had a preconceived idea yes. of what bass should sound like. And I kind of broke a lot of rules. Yeah. You know, I, I was not your normal guy. You know, you know, I wasn't I wasn't the perfect guy for a guy who was stuck in their ways. That's part of why the band sounds so original, though. That's like that's one of the keys. <laughs> it's like yeah. there are several, but that's certainly one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and what's really interesting about it. Rick, is that, you know, there's an Earth, Wind & Fire song being played somewhere in the world every minute and 15 seconds. Every day, every hour of the day. Beautiful. Was the majority of the, the basic tracks cut live as a band? Yeah. So everybody's playing together. Absolutely. And people thought that, you know, we were playing with a click track. Never did. Wow. Never. Wow. It's amazing just because, again, because of the precision, they almost sound inhuman you know like it's so perfect it's it's just beyond perfect in how tight everything is and the horns you know being that's another part of it is like the horns are so fast and tight and uh it's unbelievable it's just unbelievable to to hear that kind of precision yeah well you know uh you know maurice was a stickler for that maurice was like uh you know, we think we work hard, but nobody worked as hard as Maurice. You know, he wrote it, he produced it, he performed it. And he was a hell of a performer, too. And a great drummer, which he does. And a lot of the younger generation don't know how great of a drummer he really was. He played on Rescue Me. Uh, uh, he played on uh, Billy Stewart, Summertime. That's Maurice, you know. And he played yeah. on those great records with Ramsey Lewis. So he had, he, had, he had a very extensive background. By the time he got to Earth, Wind & Fire, he knew who he was. You know, this was, he had no doubt who he was as a... Uh, person and as an artist. This was not like something he was, you know, trying to find his way. He knew exactly what he wanted. And he dragged me along with him, so I'm happy for that, you know. No, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And that you had a beautiful life getting to play music. It's like, what better, what better contribution can you make than making something that uh, enlivens you and the people that get to share it? And with my older brother, Idol, what? You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Sometimes when I do interviews, you know, people say, you know, what would the older Verdine tell the younger Verdine? And always, you know, you know how they do, you know, they get those questions, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's not, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it's not a sprint, but a journey kind of thing, you know, right? You know what I, mean? <laughs> but I said, that didn't apply to me because I was, the younger guy was already doing what he was doing. You thought about? And being with Maurice, I, you know, it kind of broke a lot of rules being a young person too, you know? They let me know that I could do it. And, I, and, and you know, if you stay on it, this is what you're going to do. Hard being in a in a group with so many people. Yeah, but you know, we got a lot of love and respect for each other, you know. And don't forget now, 
you know, you know, Philip, Ralph, myself, you know, we became adults together. So, you know, that's a different point of view, you know. Yeah. What year did Philip join? Do you remember? Like 71. From 71. Yeah. Really? I didn't I didn't realize that. I've known Philip for almost 55 years. Wow. And what happened when the first Earth and Fire broke up in the, uh, on the Warner Brothers, Philip used to come and hang out. And I spent the afternoon with him, you know, and we, we got along so well. But I had saw him play in Denver with the band, but he had moved to California. And we, he spent the whole afternoon and it was just so great. I liked him so much, you know, and, and uh, I called my mother. I said, I just, you see, he, even, he even plays harmonica, you know what I mean? I never saw anybody play harmonica, right? And then when Reese was formulating it and things like that, there, it was down to two other people. And Maurice said, who should we get? I said, I said we should get Philip because that's because he's a really good guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. The spirit of it. You know what I mean? And, and it would only take a, a good person to go the journey that we ended up going. You know, In the last week, I've had a conversation with two different artists, one with Pharrell and one with Q-Tip. Two great artists referenced this week Earth, Wind & Fire being the reason they make music. Again, again just wow. like it's, it's beautiful to see it from different people, different ages, in different genres, yeah. how inspirational it was and continues to be. It's just, it's beautiful, beautiful to be part of something so that has informed people's lives in such a, an important way. Yeah, you, I think what's going on with this, this uh, with the quarantine that we all are in, and it's a collective experience that we're all having, you know, as we know, people are going back, you know, to really great works, great books. They're going back to great movies. They're going back to great records. And I think, of course, our work is part of what they want to go back to, you know, and that, and their ears are actually open more now. They, they're having the opportunity to listen better. You know, we've had in the great society and the politics, right, and things like that. We're headed for a great awakening. I would call this next phase the great awakening for us. We'll be back with Rick Rubin and Verdeen White after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered... How can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work 
hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with more from Verding White of Earth, Wind & Fire. Tell me about Charles Stepney. What, what was his involvement as producer? What did he do? Because, you know, producers do different things. <laughs> Tell me about him and his involvement in the process. Well, Charles, first of all, was a great friend of Maurice's. And they worked together at Chess Records. And then Charles had uh, done a lot of arrangements for Ramsey Lewis with Maurice. And Charles was the one that brought Minnie Riverton on the scene. You know, uh, wow. the first album was called Come to My Garden, which was a great, 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 great record. And they just stayed in touch. And then Charles had done the Last Days and Times record uh, for us. The first record we did for Clive Davis on Columbia Records. Charles did that. Then Charles came back again and worked with us on Open Our Eyes, That's the Way of the World, the breakthrough record for us, and the Spirit record, which he passed away on the Spirit record. And Charles was our father figure, big brother. He was the one that Maurice would listen to the most. Charles would say, we're going to do it like this, and Reese would do it. And Charles was great for myself and Philip and all of us, all of us together. And, uh, and he was actually to our George Martin. Even though you guys are from Chicago, do you consider yourself a Chicago band or do you consider yourself a California band? I say California now, you know, because I became an adult here. You know, we came from Chicago, which brought a certain sensibility, you know, to it, you know. Yeah. And a good foundation, you know, because uh, I came from a good family background. My mom and dad, my dad was a doctor. My mom was a school teacher. We had a lot of music around the house. So that was good. That's what I brought to California. And then when I got with Maurice... You know what I mean? You know, working with him closely and living with him. I had a chance to 
figure out where he was coming from. And he would talk to me about music a lot, you know. Uh, and so that so and then we became Californians. He, he did, too. You know what I yes. mean? Because we got into yoga. We got into meditation. We got into <laughs> eating good. We got into, you know, uh, going to seminars at the Bodhi Tree, you know, things like that. You know what I mean? So we Beautiful. became actually California, you know, California. Started eating yogurt. So, yeah. yeah. You know. How how important was the spiritual aspect in addition to the music? Like, Well, Reese was sort of always open, you know what I mean? You know, He was always open, you know. And it was always loose. It was never like heavy. It was not like a dogma. You know what I'm talking about? It was loose. Uh, we didn't get in each other's way spiritually, things like that. It was just a progression. You know what I mean? And then, you know, we adopted, you know, a lot of the California stuff, which was actually kind of natural. Of course, we didn't do that. You couldn't do that in Chicago. That would be too weird lighting incense, you know what I mean? And uh, uh, but it was we got into the California thing, you know, uh, which was wide open. I don't think we ever would have made it as big had we not come to California. It opened your mind to new things being in California, you think? Right, and, and new creativity. Because don't forget now, this is where everybody came. You know, this is where everybody's still, this is where everybody is coming back to now, you know what I mean? Because of the, just the openness of thought, of, of possibilities, you know. There was, you came from a musical household. Tell me about the actual music that would be playing in the house. What do you remember? First memories as a kid, what might be playing in the house? Anything, it was nine of us, so it was noisy. So you get it, you get in where you fit in. And uh, so in one room, my sister would be listening to the radio station WVON of Chicago. She used to listen to Purvis Spann, the blues man. My dad would be listening to Mahaley Jackson because he loved Mahaley Jackson, you know, things like that. My mom loved Lou Rawls, uh, live at the Copa, you know. And then, and then me and my brother Monty and my brother Freddie, you know, we thought we were cool. So we, we, we would be listening to, you know, you know, Miles Davis, Four and More, and, uh, uh, and Miles in the Sky. We love that record. You know, we were teenagers. So if you, if, you didn't, if you told people you listened to Miles Davis, you were cool, even if you didn't listen to it. <laughs> the fact that you knew him. <laughs> so we, so we, were the, we were the hip guys. We wanted to be, we were cool, lighting incense in our bedroom. So that's kind of like what was going on. And, uh, uh, and my baby sisters were just babies at the time, but, uh, uh, but it was, it was a lot of, very freeform household, very freeform, was never, uh, uh, it was not that strict. It was actually, for that era, it was quite loose. You know what I mean? You know, you know it wasn't like spankings, I'm gonna get you when I'm in spankings, things like, you know, things like that, you know. Also interesting for the, how eclectic the band was to grow up in an eclectic household, makes sense. It's like, it makes sense because it was never, Earth, Wind & Fire was never one thing. You know, it always right. felt bigger than one thing. We, right. we may talk about funk being a backbone, but it was not just that right. at all. Where so many funk bands were just that. I would have to say a lot of those funk bands, a lot of those guys grew up together, you know, probably buddies in school and things like that. But in our, in our world, you know, Maurice was the leader, so he had traveled around the whole, we hadn't been anywhere. So a lot of the things that he knew, he turned us on to him. You mean, so he turned us on a lot of different philosophies that he was into and things like that. We went to Egypt, you know what I mean? And, and Maurice and I went to Egypt and Israel and things like that. So, you know, he was a world guy, you know, he was a very different type of person, you know. And, uh, and then don't forget now, you know, Earth and Fire was formulated, he formulated it in the, in the 60s, which was at the, the, the first wave of cosmic consciousness, obviously, you know, things like that. It was like the yes. precursor to what everybody... Now has a yoga mat. Now, now everybody has a yoga mat. They didn't used to. They, they, they didn't. You know, they didn't even know what it was. Now, now everybody has one. 
you know. I was going to ask about, you were talking about Miles Davis, and I was going to ask you about the influence of jazz in the band. Right. How did jazz work itself into, or did the fact that, that you guys listened to jazz growing up, did that influence Earth, Wind & Fire? Well, you know, Maurice was the ultimate jazzer of the band, you know, and, uh, and Charles Stepney played jazz too. Great jazz. So it was really good for us to kind of turn us on. And, and Philip and myself and Ralph and, and uh, we, uh, Ralph's a really big jazz, a really uh, excellent, you know, know, about the history of jazz, really. He's really the expert in the band of jazz and Philip is too. And, uh, and what was great about it for me, being around Maurice, but then I had a chance to hang out with Philip a lot. He would play me music and, and us being the same age, you know, he could maybe explain it to me what was going on. Whereas Maurice just threw us in there. You got to jump in and fit in, you know, okay, because the, the music is taking off. And so I could say, hey, man, so what did he just say? You know, uh, so it was it was good that I had a chance to, you know, grow in this band listening to jazz, you know, because our, I sort of kind of caught the tip end of jazz playing upright to bass guitar. So when you were playing upright, did you learn playing jazz and classical? Yeah. And it was good for technique. But then right right at the doorstep was bass guitar. Fender bass that, you know, that, you know, guys like myself and then uh, Stanley Clark and Marcus Miller, Nathan East, uh, Michael Henderson, you know, that that wave started. So I, so that's when I kind of like started when it kind of was like jazz funk yeah. and jazz pop influence, you know. Did you ever have an opportunity to play upright bass on any Earth, Wind & Fire records? Only one. It was only one. And that and I did it on the on one of our shows, I write a song when I did it on that section, but it actually sounded better on bass guitar, really, actually. Cool. You know what I mean? You know, it's, I'm glad I played it because it was good for technique. It fights back when I practice. Uh, the practices on upright are horrible. The ones on <laughs> bass guitar are fun. Uh, I took a lesson from Ron Carter and, uh, <laughs> at his house, and, uh, and it was a horrible lesson. He said, man, this was, this was not good. I just not good. This not good. I said, Sir Ronnie, I said, I'm practicing. I said, but tonight you'll see what I really do. You know what I'm talking about? So he came to Madison Square Garden and he thought he was in the wrong. He thought he was at a basketball game. There were so many people. You know what I'm about? You know what I mean? So so I said, I said, Ronnie, this is what I this is what I really do. You know what I'm talking about? You know? But I said, I, I love to practice anyway. And I wanted to have the opportunity of hanging out with Ron Carter and taking a lesson, even if it was horrible. So cool. So cool. So you've you've gotten to make albums consistently since I guess first album in 1970, 71, is that about right? Yeah, 70, right. Those, those, uh, yeah, 70, 71, right, right. It's like 50 years, unbelievable. Yeah. And the, the technology keeps changing. Right. Popular music keeps changing. Tell me about your experience in watching the changes and, re and reacting to the changes either by swinging with what's going on or by not. You know, like just choosing, well, we're not, this is what they're doing now. We're just going to do this instead. Talk to me about just the, what you saw the changes in the way music has been recorded, let's say. Well, we've watched the changes, you know, from we're at four track to eight track, right? 24 track, right? We went through that phase, right? Yep. Which we watched and we were part of that. Uh, then we watched, of course, you know, CDs, right? DVDs all of those things, Pro Tools, you know what I mean? So it's just part of just the evolution. And I think that if you have a, a pretty much of a foundation, you can swing with it. You know, I think if you don't have a foundation, you'll run to the technology without 
and forget the music. Yeah. You know, we had, we had a strong musical background. So we could yes. say, well, how did this fit into our music? Beautiful. Let's talk about James Brown for a minute. What, okay. Was James Brown an important figure uh, musically for Earth, Wind & Fire, would you say? Sort of like. He wasn't like first. As funky yeah. as he was, and yeah. I know I'm going to get some pushback. You no, know? no, no, it's fine. It's interesting. I, I really want to understand the inspiration is a big part of how we get where we're going. We still bring ourselves to it, but it's interesting, like, what's coming through that gets us where we're going. What I loved about him was his live performances. That's what I loved. That's the one. You know, the one, if you want to see some James Brown stuff, watch the Tammy show. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? And uh, somebody told me it took 90 minutes for those girls to stop screaming after he got, <laughs> after he did what he did. You know, you, you know what I mean? And uh, he was just one of them. You know, it was James Brown, it was Miles Davis, it was John Coltrane for us, you know what I mean? And things like that, you know? But also the Beatles and all. Oh, the Beatles. That, those guys, I think what they did, they were sort of like, I think they were the ones that, that busted the door wide open. If you go back and listen to like, when they would mop tops and I want to hold your hand and all the way down to Abbey Road, the work they did was really incredible. And, and the, what they did was really good. What the, the, the record that showed how hip they was was Rubber Soul. That was the one. Rubber Soul was the record. And, and, and it was almost like the joke was on us because they knew so much about what they were doing and it just kept, I mean, different, different, different. And you could, and you could really think that Sgt. Pepper really actually was a record of samples, really, when you really look back at it with the, the machine going backwards and things like that. And then they had somebody like George Martin to make musical sense of what the, was in their ears, what they were listening to. They did something in one group that everybody has bitten off of. You know, they first of all, a group that got massively big, which everybody dreams about, right? Hit records, right? Important records, right? Cultural icons forever, right? Spirituality with Transcendental Meditation of Maharishi Yogi, right? So they're like sort of like more of a uh, than a group that's sort of like an entity. That's how I look at their work. I think I think of the Beatles as proof of God. It's like the, it's do you know it's like it's too much it's too much. It's too right. this is not this is not the work of four boys from a little country town, you know, right. in in the north of England. It's this is That's right. It's much bigger than that. Absolutely. It's much it's much bigger. It really it changed the world that everybody has bitten off of in one way or another, you know. Uh, when I talk about Miles in the Sky, that's when Miles started going towards the rock thing, you know what I mean? That's when Miles got hip, you know, in the 60s, you know, things like that. And that's when uh, a lot of music changed, you know, because of the chord changes and then songwriting, you know, that was the first time artists wrote their own songs in a band. So uh, great work by them, really great work. They were the first ones that, you know, did movies, you know. Yeah. So no, actually, another piece that makes sense is if I think of, if I compare Earth, Wind & Fire to other funk bands, Earth, Wind & Fire always had songs where funk bands often had great grooves that weren't necessarily right. songs. Right. So, and same holds true if we look at James Brown versus the Beatles. James Brown always had the groove, but it right. wasn't always about the song. It, it might just be about the pocket. Right. But the Beatles had the songs. And don't forget now, Maurice was a song person. Before he got with Ramsey, he was a, a, a session drummer. So he did commercials. So he understands probably the, 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 the intro, the chorus, the verse, the hook. What is it saying, you know? Actually, we did the cover of the Beatles, Got to Get You My Life, in the Sgt. Wow. Pepper movie. And what happened was that 
uh, George Martin had had lunch with Maurice and myself about the movie. But he didn't have time to work with us because he was working with Aerosmith and the Bee Gees and Billy Preston, you know. And uh, he said, why don't you guys just do your own thing? And that's what we yeah. did. And it was the number one, it was the biggest song on that movie. Beautiful. Because the movie was a, it was a huge flop. I mean, you know, when you go back, people don't know that now, but it was not as big as they thought it was going to be. But we had the record and we still play the song today. I remember going to see it in the theater as a kid. I, I may have been one of a few people in that theater, but I was in the theater watching that. Yeah, we and we shot in Culver City, and we were in the middle of, uh, we had just got back, had a day off from one of our tours, and we had to shoot everything, like, you know, in one day. You know, that's how fast it was going. You know, Robert Stigwood, you know, back you know, back then, you know, more, 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 let's go, let's go, let's go, you know. Yeah. Did you meet Stigwood? Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting character. I've only heard about him. I've never met him. Yeah, he was, you know, he was very nice to us. You know, we were kids at the time, so everybody was nice, you know. And, uh, but what, one of the significant things was uh, Michael Schultz, uh, the, the African-American director. He, uh, uh, he was one of the first to do a big budget movie. That was a big budget movie, you know. But it was a great time to be part of a movie and, and things like that, you know. We'll be back with Rick Rubin and Verdine White after the break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, 
I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with more from Verding White of Earth, Wind & Fire. I'm just picturing the world that you were in then, you know? Right. Did it feel different than the other things that were going on? Could you tell that your band was different? We, we, we definitely were in... The Earth, Wind & Fire bubble, you know what I mean? Because don't forget now, we were doing something that had never, ever been done before, you know? You know, no group had ever tried the things, you know, that we tried, you know? And, and at that time, you know, we were getting ready to go to Columbia Records when Clive was president of Columbia Records. And Clive gave us everything we needed to do it, you know what I mean? So we felt really secure, you know? And we knew we could do it. We knew we were going to do really good if we just keep at it. We didn't really know what was going on with everybody else, actually. We knew, but we didn't, you know, we weren't part of it, you know. And in, in today's world, if an artist doesn't break really on their first project, they tend to go away. And you guys got to really build over a period of time. It was really, was it like the fourth or fifth album that really broke through? It was the That's the Way the World record with Shining Star on it. And Is that about, f- about fifth, would you say? That about fifth, where we had last season times, right? Heads at the sky, open our eyes, right? Uh, then that's the way to go. That was, what, four, right? Four. So for those first three albums, you guys already had been touring, playing like clubs? Uh, we were playing, not clubs a lot, but student unions, you know? Gymnasiums and, and wow. uh, on with, like I said, groups like Ohio Players and Mandrill, you know, uh, those kind of things. And then the, the show that broke us big was a show called Soul in 1971, 72, uh, out of New York City. And they played the show about 19 times. It was a TV show. A television show called Soul. Wow, I, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, right. It's an obscure show now, but back it was a very important show. It was before wow. Soul Train. Not a lot of dancing, but it was a show that had a lot of artists on it. And it was show had politicians on it like Jesse Jackson and the last poets, right? At that time, you know, so we were kind of in that thing at that time. 
That yeah. sounds great. I want to. I'm gonna try to find old episodes. I've never. I've never even heard of it before. That sounds yeah, great. man. And then and the show opens up with Maurice playing Kalimba. Wow. Yeah. So cool. You know, it was it was like you know an intro was like brothers and sisters. You know, we hear Earth and Fire tonight. Do the blah 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 blah. Right. You know, and uh, uh, and it, and it was it was eclectic show, but it was a very powerful show, and we fit right in at that particular time. Understood. And that's really what broke things open. You think. Yeah, you know, and then we were playing a lot of colleges. We were on the road a lot. So those records were selling like, you know, two, three hundred thousand, half a million. So we were on our way to that's the way of the world. It just didn't it just wasn't a unicorn that came out of nowhere. It was a build up to to that. Did it feel like you were it was a constant build or was it kind of a plateau at a good level until it exploded? No, it was a constant build. It just kept going and we kept hearing it out and feeling it and it kept getting better and but it wasn't like a thing like, you know, oh, man, we got a big hit record. We just kept going. You know, it was like we just kept growing, kept, go- you know, kept going, you know. So then when things did explode, it seems like you'd be able to handle it better <laughs> based on doing all the work leading up to it. You know, some artists, when good things happen really fast, they kind of flame out. <laughs> right. It was a little overwhelming, you know, because it was big. You know, when it gets big, it kind of bounces back off of you, you know. But we, we were, I think the fact that we, we had done records before... You know, we had enough, we had enough with ourselves not to like go crazy, crazy. Cool. Do you remember the first experience of thinking, wow, this is really getting big? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was like when I heard uh, That's the Way of the World, you know, we recorded at uh, Caribou Ranch back in the day. Remember Caribou? You know, Jim Bercio's place, right? And, And after Maurice mixed the record and edited and everything, he let me hear the record. I said, man, goose pimples. It was like, I mean, is that us? (laughs) <laughs> wow. Right. You know, is that us? Is it like, is it that, is it that good? And, and actually it was great for Maurice because after Step had passed, Maurice had to take over, you know, as a producer. So, you know, so he had to, you know, he had to wear like three or four hats, you know what I'm talking about. And, and one of the things that I'd have to say, nobody who ever played drums came off the drums and ever did what Maurice ended up doing. And then be, and became an icon and became a you know musical leader and things like that and helped the industry too. If it hadn't been for Maurice, there would never would have been African Americans doing concerts, and uh, and we actually had to keep up with him. You know, you know, he was just one of those rare people that really kind of knew ex- exactly what he wanted. Even in the beginning of those records that we did, that were not hits. The genesis of the sound was there. You know, you could still you can still hear it. You know, it was there. You know, the foundation of the sound. You know. The transition from playing in gymnasiums to what was the next step after gymnasiums as things got bigger? Theaters, then arenas, then stadiums. And so when we play uh, theaters and arenas and stadiums, now they're for different reasons. Like we did the, the classics with the Eagles and everybody a couple of years ago. So that was great, a lot of fun. A lot of that audience probably had never seen us before, you know, on the stage with the Eagles. Uh, the arenas are are, uh, are good because they put our big production in there, you know. Uh, so a lot of the people can see us on the big screens. Theaters are great because we get a chance to play longer. And we can play songs from some of the jazzier things in a theater because it fits the environment. You know, it's like if you're going to watch, you know, a, a great movie. It's better in a theater. Absolutely. I, I call it like in a theater, it's great. A lot of ghosts in those theaters, you know. Yeah. I think you I think you can hear the music better in a theater than in an arena as well. It's just like a it's a more musical experience. Yeah, well that arena stuff is all show business. Yeah. You know, it's all show business. You know, it's big. That means you're big. And that means the box office is great. You yeah, know? yeah. And that means you're successful. And that means 
you're hot. You know, that's what, uh, you know, you know, that means you're happening. Yeah. As much fun playing big show, small show, just pl playing. And, and do you know it when you're in it or does the music kind of take over in a way where once the show starts, you could be anywhere? Yeah, well, I think for us now, we all know each other so well, we kind of know what that thing is. You know, we know, okay, it's an arena, so we got to strap in and find out where the space is so it'll feel good. It's like greatest hits. It's greatest hits. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's star time. Yeah, yeah. Y you know what I mean? And when you do a stadium, it's like you're on the moon. They can't catch you. You know how people say, so what are you guys playing at tonight? Dodger Stadium. And people don't say anything to you because it's, it's bigger than them, you know? Yeah. And, and in a place like Dodger Stadium, it's more like it's the event. You get to say you were there, but it's rarely about like the intricacies of the performance because you're too far away and the sound just dissipates. But you, if you find a space, you can really nail them. Like, you know, we found that arena space. And then when Philip at the end told the audience, wave your hands in the air, we had 60,000 people waving their hands in the air. And because what's great about social media and things like that, they get a chance to tell their friend what they just saw. Whereas before, in the 70s, if you did it, nobody knew except the people that came. Yeah, so now word spreads. And when you talk about playing, like uh, doing shows with bands like the Eagles in this, in, in this recent round, that probably was more like in the very early days, you probably got to play with bands, much more, a much more eclectic group of bands. Like I think, didn't you guys play with like Love and Spoonful and- Right, we opened up for John, Sebastian, remember John uh, was in the Loving Spoonful. Yes. And John let us do uh, a tour with him. Incredible. And we played Lincoln Center with him. And Clive Davis came to see John. Yeah. But he came to see, and then he saw you. us and said, listen, I, I like those guys. I want to get together with those guys. That's how that happened. And to this day, John and I are great friends, just wonderful person, just really great. Just really great. Always sweetheart, always sweetheart, you know. Beautiful. T tell me about um, signing with Clive, and you said that he gave you what you needed to do what you needed to do. Right. It just sounds like it, it really worked out. Your experience with Warner Brothers before that wasn't, it didn't work as well, but how was the relationship with the people? Well, with Warner's at the time, Joe Smith was at the, running the label. Joe was, you know. Uh, Mo was there, but Mo was actually doing reprise, you know, you know, Frank Sinatra's label. And that's when Mo came later, you know. But we only did two records for, 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 for Joe. Mm -hmm. And then Clive had heard about us. But Warners, they weren't really ready. They weren't really ready for a group of color. You know what I mean? And Joe was cool. We got out of there, you know what I mean? And yeah, then yeah. Clive saw us. You know, uh, Clive bought the contract from Warners. But Clive, you know, he was, you know, running CBS Records. And CBS Records was on fire, you know what I mean? You, know, you had Sly and the Family Stone. You had all wow. those great groups, you know what I mean, that, that Clive had, you know what I mean? And, uh, and he was the one that opened up that door for us, brought us to the Grosvenor House, you know, in London, so everybody could take a look at us. And it was expensive. So really, Earth, Wind & Fire was like the great American experiment that worked. Yeah. Because it hadn't happened. Don't forget now, the only game in town was Motown, right? When you look at it, you know, for where the African Americans could go to be successful. Absolutely. Of that nature, to be that big. Hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. What we did hadn't happened, you know. So after we happened, then that's when you saw Funkadelics. That's when you saw Bootsy Collins. That's when you saw probably James Brown was the only one in the 60s that got big. But he was by himself, though. He was the only game in town. And as we said, it wasn't, it wasn't based on, in my opinion, it wasn't based on the songs. It was just based on he had the sound that nobody had at that time. That's right. And then he was so great live that when they put him on a Tammy show, 
and Ed Sullivan lights out. So after, you know, that, when we came along, it was a whole different generation of artists. And then don't forget now, African-American radio had gotten big. You know what I mean? Yeah. Went from AM to FM stereo. So you had great disc jockeys playing records, like, you know, the late Frankie Crocker that was uh, yes. uh, breaking all those great records, but in different genres, though. Absolutely. But you guys played you guys played on all radio. It wasn't just urban radio. You guys played on everything. I mean, right. I heard you on every station. But Clive was always great. And even to this day, we always get a big hug from Clive. We've done his, his uh, you know, the Clive party all uh, a lot. And we've done uh, his documentaries and things like that. And uh, but always, always will be forever indebted because he gave us the, the big break that opened the door for us. Yeah, that stayed open. He's historically known for having a lot to say about songs. Would he get involved in that way or would he just be supportive? At that time of supportive, I think when he went to Arista, that's when he got into it. You know, because Columbia was, Columbia was, it was so big, you know, it was so monolithic, you know, big, big, big corporation. Uh, but he was there for us anyway, you know what I mean? Whatever yeah. we want to do, we could do it. And, and Clive loved Maurice, so, you know, it was, it was uh, uh, he always trusted Reese. Beautiful. Tell, tell me a little bit about your music listening habits now. I listen to everything. Sometimes I'll go back to the past to see if I still liked it when I liked it before, to see if my ears are on, on point. Uh, I'm having a chance to like really do some nice work, you know. Of course, we will do an Earth and the Fire album at some point. Uh, but recently, I've had a chance to work with uh, my drummer John Paris from the band and uh, Neil Pole, great engineer, uh, great producer, great writer. He just got nominated for two Grammys, so we get a chance to talk about music, chop it up, work on tracks. You know, it keeps me active, things like that. And uh, I still practice. I still, you know. What I like about the quarantine, actually, it's really, you know, it's been kind of cool because I've had a chance to really be creative, you know. Absolutely. You know, with no judgment on it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Have you ever played on anyone else's records? Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, Flo Rider, DJ Cassidy, <laughs> a lot of, yeah, man, a lot of stuff. And then what happens is when I work with other people, the session is like three hours. But they, they ask me questions and it turns into 11 hours. <laughs> And when I saw Pharrell about a year ago, he was humming to me. When people meet me, they hum the songs. He was humming uh, a running, you know? They hum the songs. So it, it might start out it's as a so two-hour session, but they want to know everything, what was going on. What was, you know, they want to know what, what the world was like. Yeah. You know, they want to know what it, what, was, what, what it smelled like, you know? Yes. What it sounded like. So when I do sessions, they're like 11 hours, not because we're playing. They just want to, you know, they've, you, 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 you know what I'm saying? It's so funny. And then, and then now I'm getting adopted now. So if I work with an artist, you know, they said, you know what? I'm going to make you my uncle. You know what I mean? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, Is anything I can bring you? You know what I mean? Can I, could you want some coffee? You know? And, but they want to know, which I think is really great. You know what I mean? That obviously they, they, they respect you enough to want to know what happened. I work with LL Cool J and, uh, and you know, he's great, you know, big muscles and everything. He did the introduction for us at the Kennedy Center Honors. And he said, you know, man, I had a poster, all y'all stuff, man, in my bedroom. <laughs> and I'm saying, wow, you're talking about? And then, and then I said, listen, I got to take a picture because I need some street cred. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for talking to me about music and about your life. And, and thank you for uh, making the world a better place. Thank you, man. And thank you for letting me be on your show. All righty. A pleasure, sir. Love you. Thanks to Verdine White for bringing us into his inner earth, wind, and fire circle. 
You can hear all of our favorite Earth, Wind & Fire songs on our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Also, follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. We're a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.